right. Good morning, church. Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab them. Luke chapter 3, as we continue through our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you're new with us here today or a visitor, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke one verse at a time. And so we have arrived at chapter 3, verse 21 is where we're going to pick up this morning. Uh, I'll make one quick announcement. I know it's um, awkward for Matt, but next week there is a shower for his daughter, Elise, who's getting married. So just want to throw that out there. There's more information out in the lobby in case you uh, have any questions about that. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been in chapter 3. So we've seen John the Baptist come on the scene. He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He is the last Old Testament prophet in proclaiming that there is one that is coming, a Messiah is coming. And so we, we see that he's preaching a message of repentance. He's preaching turning from your sin, preparing your hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And then last week, we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There in Verse 16, John says, it says, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, we looked at different things that take place at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number one, regeneration. At that moment, there's a regeneration that the Lord changes our hearts. He gives us a new heart. We're reborn, as he would tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3. There's a residency that takes place. The indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a believer. That indwelling presence then builds into a relationship. There's a relationship that takes place, this intimate union that you are now in Christ. And that intimate union is not just individualistic, but it's communal. You'll now be part of one church, one family. That relationship then begins to create a renewal of your life. There's a sanctification that begins to take place. The Holy Spirit within you gives you gifts for the ministry to, to uh, benefit all. It begins to produce in you fruits of the Spirit that you are incapable of producing on your own. And then there's a fruit of reproduction that takes place that we become his witnesses. We are given a ministry of reconciliation by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that our lives have now been changed. So now we talk about a life-changing God. And so we're sent out as his witnesses into a world. And as we walk this path of salvation, there is a refining, that we are baptized with fire, that there are certain times in life, all of life is one of repentance, as Martin Luther would say, that the fire of conviction is turned up in our life and the impurities that we've allowed to be there come to the surface and we repent by taking those, skimming those off the top of our life and throwing them away and saying, I want no more of the filth and impurities that are in my life. And so as we get into this section where Jesus is baptized, verses 21 and 22, we see that Jesus is baptized, our substitution, in our place. Now when I say the word substitute or substitution, as a child, I thought the greatest days in school were the days where you showed up and there was a substitute teacher. As soon as you walked in the class, you, you knew, oh, this is going to be an easy day. I cannot wait. Now, personally, I, I've never been a substitute teacher. I have, I've been there while my wife has you know, been sick and she's tried to call and get a substitute teacher early in the morning. Uh, and really only one time have I been left alone. With a, with a group of second graders. And, and I'm traumatized just for that one moment that I was left in there. Uh, I was visiting my wife. I think I was probably bringing her lunch or something that day. And this young little girl decided that she wanted to stab her eraser 
uh, with her pencil. And so she held the eraser in her hand, and she missed. And so she just stabbed herself right with that pencil. Blood went everywhere. My wife's really good in these situations. She grabbed her, and she just looked at me, and she said, watch the class. And I was like, watch the class? How about I take the girl? Let, let me, like, do something else. And so I said, all right, class, get out a pencil, get out some paper. We're going to take notes. And they did. And I was like, this is amazing. This is happening. And so then I said, don't stab yourself with a pencil. And that was the only notes that I had them write down. <laughs> as I talk about a substitute, though, we talk about Jesus as our substitute. Jesus steps in, not as, not as one without authority, but with one who has all authority, who has humbled himself. He's come and he's put on flesh, and he now stands in our place. And we think about the fact that there is a substitutionary atonement, which means that there is a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God in our place. Jesus takes our place. And even as we get into the baptism of Jesus, it's about that substitution. Substitutionary atonement means that Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place, taking the punishment of our sins upon himself. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The atonement is secured through a sacrifice, through a shedding of blood. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? That one sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are going through the refining process where the conviction is heating up and you're skimming off the impurities of your life and you're saying, I, I repent of these. He has perfected for all time as our substitute. Let me read one quote by Martin Luther and then we'll pray and we'll jump in today to today's scripture. All the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc., that ever was or could be in all the world. For he, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, is not now an innocent person without sin, but a sinner. Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter, the denier. Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. David, that adulterer, that sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. That thief, which hanged upon the cross. And briefly be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See, therefore, that thou pay and satisfy for them. Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. Jesus is our perfect substitute. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. 
We thank you for the obedience of your son, Jesus Christ, the obedience that he lived out his entire life in the will of you for the sanctification and salvation of us so that we could be made right. Father, we thank you for the substitutionary atonement. We thank you for the one sacrifice that has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Please give us wisdom today as we read your word in Christ's name. Amen. Today, I want to cover three reasons. Jesus was baptized, and three reasons believers are baptized. That's it. Just three reasons and three reasons. Let's read Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let me stop there. Well, we have the context. John is baptizing in the waters, the Jordan River. People in mass crowds are coming out to be baptized. They're repenting of the sins, and they're following in the baptism of repentance. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, you should baptize me. Now, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized in a baptism of repentance because he is without sin. So this raises the question, why was Jesus baptized? Well, number one, We can see here he was baptized to be identified with sinners. Jesus was being baptized among the multitudes of sinners. Jesus came into the world to identify with men. Jesus Christ incarnate, he put on flesh. And to identify with men means to identify with their sin, yet he had to identify with sin without being sinful. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be identified with sinners. This is the first act of his ministry. Jesus' ministry is about to take place, but yet, first of all, he comes on the scene in obedience to baptism, to be numbered among sinners. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, Baptism is a sign that points us away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was suggesting that we'll miss its real power and usefulness in our lives if we think that its chief message is to point us to what we ourselves have done. Everything Jesus did was for us. He had no need to do it for himself. So when he was baptized himself, it was for us. Jesus is being baptized into our sin so that we might be baptized into his righteousness. Sin-filled waters pour over him. Cleansing grace flows over us. And in a sense, the message of our baptism is also this, that God says to us in Christ, you are my beloved son whom I am well pleased, and I adopt you into my family. That's the message contained in the baptism, and it calls us to believe that message. Jesus is the substitute. He is in our place. He is being identified with sinners. As Jesus comes to those waters and the multitudes have been going through the baptism, it is a symbol that all the sins are now covering in that water. And Jesus willingly and obediently steps into those waters, though without sin, to be fully immersed in the sins of the people. Jesus is our substitute, and yet he is sinless. Why was Jesus baptized? Number two, to fulfill all righteousness. Number one, to be identified with sinners. Number two, to fulfill all righteousness. For us to find this, we need to 
flip over to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. We're going to look at Matthew's account and John's account. We're, we're going to skip Mark. We're not going to look at Mark's account because it's similar to Luke's account. Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I like this account from Matthew because it gives you the side of John, where John would have seen Jesus coming and said, Whoa, 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 you don't need to be baptized. These are all sinners, right? These are, this is the brood of vipers. We don't need any, these all, they need to go through the waters, but you're a sinless Savior. You don't need to be baptized. In fact, if anyone's getting baptized here, I'm the sinner, and I should be baptized by you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what, it's fitting. It's, the word there is necessary. It's necessary for me to be baptized in these waters because it fulfills righteousness. It fulfills the law. It fulfills all the requirements, because Jesus is in our place as our substitution. Even our repentance needs to be repented of. And yet Jesus, as he walks through these waters of repentance, does so perfectly in our place. So, before he could go to the cross, before Jesus could be the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world, before he could make for himself the offering that that satisfies the wrath of God. He had to submit himself in every way to the Father's will. And as he comes to the waters, he comes and he says, it's fitting, it's necessary for me to go through this baptism. J. Vernon McGee says, why was Jesus baptized? There are many and several answers, but the primary reason is stated right here. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is identifying himself completely with sinful mankind. Isaiah had prophesied that he would be numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As Jesus comes to the waters, he is numbered among the transgressors. When all the people had been baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he is numbered among the transgressors. He's hanging between two thieves on a cross. Jesus identifies with sinners, and he fulfills all righteousness. He goes on to say, here's a king who identifies himself with his subjects. Actually, baptism means identification. And I believe identification was the primary purpose for the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was holy. He did not need to repent. You and I need to repent. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He was baptized to completely identify himself with humanity. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, three, to be revealed as the Messiah. Jesus came, and he was identified with sinners. He fulfilled all righteousness, and he was baptized to be revealed as the Messiah. Let's look in John's gospel, John chapter 1, 
verses 29 through 36, John's account of this. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The point here is that John the Baptist knew early on, you see, here's the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, but then it was even further revealed to him the depth of his identity. He knew that he would come baptizing, and through that baptizing, that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah, and that the Messiah would be revealed through the baptism of repentance. And during this baptism of repentance, it then all of a sudden makes sense. He sees the dove, the Holy Spirit, descend on him and rest on him and remain, and he says, this is the one. This is the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus had to be baptized in order to be revealed. You see a verbal affirmation. You see a visible affirmation in the baptism of Jesus. And as we follow in believers' baptism, we too see that the heavens are opened to us. That we now can have a right relationship with the Father because of Jesus' substitution in our place. We see that just as the Holy Spirit descended upon him, that we are given the promised Holy Spirit as believers. Jesus Christ was our substitute in our place. And one day, those who are in Christ will hear, You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. There's three reasons why Jesus had to be baptized. Now let's quickly look at three reasons why believers are baptized. Well, number one, believers are baptized to fulfill the ordinance of believers' baptism and to be identified with Christ. Simple enough, the word ordinance is similar to the word sacrament. Protestant churches would use the word ordinance. And so there are two main ordinances that are handed down to the church. And an ordinance is a visible sign that would signify an inward change. So what are two ordinances, what are two visible signs that have been handed down to the church that identify believers with Jesus Christ? Number one, the Lord's Supper. Number two, baptism. These two ordinances identify who are His. Let's real quick look at the Lord's Supper, which we will partake of next week as we seek to be a church that partakes of the Lord's Supper at the first Sunday of the month. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, Paul's writing here, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So what the Lord gave me, I now tell you, the church, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus set up at the Passover the Lord's Supper, which was to be uh, partaken of by the church as a rite that showed 
who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ partake of Christ. And so we have the Lord's Supper that identifies an inward change. We also have baptism. Though the Lord's Supper happens repeatedly, baptism is the inaugural sign of one's salvation. Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's a command that is given by Jesus, not only to do this in remembrance of me and proclaim the Lord's death until I come, but there's also an ordinance that as you go and make disciples, the first sign of that visible change should be a baptism of believers. And as they get to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see this take place. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So from Scripture, we can conclude that baptism is the first sign of obedience for those who follow Jesus Christ. Baptism is obedience to that ordinance. John Piper would say it this way, The meaning of baptism develops out of this meaning of discipleship. If becoming a disciple of Jesus means dying to your old life and walking in newness of life with Christ as Jesus taught, then it's almost inevitable that the symbolic act of that conversion should come to signify a death and resurrection. So Jesus commands baptism as a normative part of disciple-making because baptism signifies in an outward way what it means to become a disciple, death to self-reliance and new life of faith following Jesus. It is an ordinance. Why are believers baptized? Number two, to visualize a Trinitarian union through the observance of believers' baptism. There is an observance that takes place. Just as Jesus was baptized and the heavens were opened, you see that Jesus is there in the water. You hear the voice of the Father and you see the Spirit descend on him. You see this Trinitarian view of what is taking place, that the Trinity is involved in salvation. So you could say the Father chooses our salvation, the Son consummates our salvation, and the Spirit confirms our salvation. All three are at work in our salvation. And so as a believer goes through the waters of baptism, they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a Trinitarian union that is observed through this ordinance. Ephesians chapter 1. 3 through 5, Paul writes about our salvation, and then skipping down to 13 and 14, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As Paul writes about our salvation, he says, listen, the Father chose you in him before the foundations of the world. You were chosen, and through Jesus Christ and his work as a substitute in our place, you can be adopted as sons. And when you have received Jesus Christ, you are now sealed with the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit who holds you until that day when you see Jesus face to face. Why are believers baptized? Well, just as Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners, 
Sinners are baptized to be identified with their Savior. Paul not writing about the ordinance of baptism, but talking about what happens, the baptism that takes place when we are fully immersed in Christ, says this in Romans chapter 6, 3 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we see that the observance of baptism is a visual picture of what takes place inwardly, we see that there's a Trinitarian union that takes place, but we also see that there is a picture that we are so united with Christ that there is a death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. That we are now no longer dead in sin, but we have been risen to newness of life. James Montgomery Boyce says the best way to understand baptism and to understand the word is to look at what a Greek poet and physician Nicander said in 200 B.C. And what he wrote was a recipe for how to make pickles. Now I got your attention. You're thinking about lunch. Okay, so this recipe for pickles, he says that first the vegetable should be dipped, bapto, into boiling water. This is how you make pickles, I guess. And then baptized, baptizo, in a vinegar solution. Both verbs concerning the immersing of vegetables in a solution. But the first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. When used in the New Testament, the word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than it is to our water baptism. Mere intellectual assent is not enough. There must be a union with him, a real change, like a vegetable becoming a pickle. So, have you been changed? Has there been something that has taken place in your life, a regeneration of the heart that is indescribable? Water baptism is simply a symbol, an outward expression of an inward change that has taken place, that I have been fully immersed with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, Jesus has identified with sinners in his baptism. Have you taken that step of obedience to be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ? Why are believers baptized? Final one, to submit in obedience to the Lord in the act of believers' baptism. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 3. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Like a dove, a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We've already discussed the fact that Jesus' baptism was to identify himself with sinners, to fulfill all righteousness, to be recognized as the Messiah. And Jesus' baptism 
was ultimately an act of obedience to the Father. He did so to live out that obedience in our place. The first act of obedience for Jesus before he begins his ministry foreshadows the ultimate purpose for his coming. The ultimate purpose of his coming was that he would submit to the Father's will, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is going to be baptized into the sins of people for their salvation. Just as it is a picture of Jesus going to the waters, these waters that were full of the sins of those who had come and repented, Jesus on the cross would really be baptized into our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 verse 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. As we look at baptism as a picture of, of obedience, I don't feel like there's any greater picture than in Acts chapter 8, 34 through 38. You may be familiar with this. It's the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. At some point in his discipleship, as they're working through Isaiah chapter 53, as he would have seen that the iniquity of us all was laid on him, the eunuch had questions. And as Philip was prompt to disciple at some point in discipling him to have Jesus Christ as his Savior, he said, the appropriate response of obedience is now baptism. So what prevents me from being baptized? Phil Newton says, the biblical manner of professing faith in Christ is through baptism. The idea of walking an aisle as a primary means of professing Christ is an addition to the past 125 years. Baptism is the outward means of expressing the reality of your inward faith in Christ. That has been the practice for Christians for 20 centuries. I would exhort any of you who have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord and yet have not been baptized since that time that you need to obey the Lord in baptism. Baptism should never be viewed as a convenient option for those who prefer it. It is the biblical pattern for declaring your faith before the world. To neglect baptism is to bring into question the reality of your faith. For who is truly saved that is so ashamed of Jesus Christ that he refuses to be baptized? Be assured that baptism has no power to save you. If you go into the waters of baptism as an unbeliever, you will come out as an unbeliever. Baptism is for believers, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what prevents you? if you are a follower of Christ and you have not gone through the waters of baptism. Jesus was baptized. He identifies with sinners. He fulfills all righteousness. It is a clear indication of both 
visibly and audibly that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to be a perfect substitute in our place. He's given us the ordinance of baptism, that we should carry it on as the church. He says, as you observe this in a, in a congregational matter, it is done in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, unifying us with him, a visible declaration of the Trinity, and it is obedience. What hinders you from being baptized? So I would say this, if you've not had the chance to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, please come talk to me. Just come talk to me. Uh, if you don't want to talk to me, talk to Matt. If you don't want to talk to Matt, talk to someone else. I don't, I don't know who you're going to talk to, but talk to somebody. And if you're a child, we believe it is a mature decision. It's a mature decision that you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so if, if you're a child, we like to take you through a class so we can see if you clearly understand the gospel, who Jesus Christ is, before we walk you through waters. So please come talk to me. I don't have time to read the genealogy. Shucks. Um, I know you wanted to hear that. But in Luke chapter 3, 23 through 38, Luke puts the genealogy of Jesus right here for a reason. If the baptism of Jesus was the verbal and visible evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, then the genealogy is the DNA evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent, defeat sin in our place as our perfect substitute.